Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature a big happy birthday to the contraceptive pill, box office hits on Twitter, and lunar real estate. But first up, here's the news with John Bale. Researchers at the University of South Florida in the United States believe they've discovered a new tool that will help provide purified water to the people of the developing world, the prickly pear cactus. The research team found that the thick gum of the cactus's mucilage, used to store H2O in the plant, removes sediment and bacteria from water. The mucilage acts as a flocculant, causing the sediment particles to join together and to settle at the bottom of the water. The gum causes the bacteria to similarly combine and settle, allowing 98% of the bacteria to be filtered out of the water. Current standard water purifying technology and methods are expensive and often abandoned because the people who use them in the developing world don't know how to use or maintain them. By comparison, the cactus's worldwide prevalence, affordability, and cultural acceptance would make it an attractive natural material for water purification. Further tests still remained regarding issues of land growth, water treatment, and purification indicators before this potential resource can be endorsed and put to good use. Acupuncture enthusiasts will be happy to hear of a study that showed acupuncture is clearly beneficial to the recovery of rats with damaged spines. Researchers at the Kyung-hee University in Seoul observed that 35 days after treatment, the two groups that received acupuncture, either between their snout and mouth or in the upper hind leg, showed significantly better abilities to stand at steeper inclines, walk, and to show forelimb to hindlimb control with minimal toe or foot dragging when compared to the control group. I don't personally know if this is related to improvements in energy flow or chi, but the researchers demonstrate that the acupuncture treatments appear to stop nerve cell death by reducing inflammation when comparing the experimental and control groups. A hypothesis of how this helps is that the sharp needle prompts a stress response that dampens the inflammation. The next level of study would need to be in humans and require comparison of times for treatment, since the rats receive acupuncture immediately after injury, whereas most human patients don't receive this form of Eastern medicine for at least three months after the damage to their spines. Those interested in findings outside of our planet will be overjoyed to hear that a lunar observer has detected a region of the moon's surface that is shielded by a small magnetic field. The significance of this discovery is that a magnetic field is necessary for the pipe dream establishment of a lunar base. A magnetic field, such as the one that naturally encompasses the Earth, is needed to protect the surface from solar wind, heavy radiation endemic to space. With this invisible padding, we humans are one step closer to houses on the moon. Ever wondered why some noises are so much more appealing than others? Ever thought about which noises people react best to? Marketers are beginning to ask these questions, as described in the book Biology and Brain Sense, written by Martin Lindstrom. As written in his book, studies by his team have found that, according to brain activation and positive feeling associations, some of the noises that people like the most are the sounds of grilling, cola being poured into a glass, and a vibrating phone. The single sound that evoked the most positive feelings and brain activation, more than twice as much as any other noise yet studied, is in fact a baby giggling. 
What does this all mean? Well, in the near future, marketers will take advantage of these natural positive associations to sell their brands and products. So for all you consumers out there, it might be a good idea to mute the TV next time the commercials are on. listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, broadcast across Sydney on 2SER and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, here's Mark West interviewing Sitaran Asur from the HP Labs in Palo Alto about predicting box office hits on Twitter. Okay, uh, so uh, to start, I work in the social computing lab at HP. And one of the things that we, uh, some of the things that we study here are uh, attention uh, in social media and uh, the the value of this uh, social media. So basically, I mean, you have all these uh, millions of people online on social networks like Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube. And you have all these people uh, chatting and like sharing content like pictures and videos and URLs uh, and also forming connections among themselves. And basically, I mean, you think... Uh, where is all this going? I mean, what is the utility or value of that 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 is provided by these uh, social media services? I mean, you can you can basically monitor and hear what so many people are talking about, but the question is, well, what do you do with it? I mean, how can you harness this uh, this this medium in some senses? So that's kind of the thing that we looked at. So the so we wanted to study how I mean something like this can be put to use, and the reason we chose movies is because I mean it's something that almost everybody is familiar with in some to some sense some degree and they all talk about it and and so basically we wanted to study how uh whether the the stuff that you know people are talking are sharing about uh, that is the opinions that they're sharing about movies uh can actually be used to make uh, useful predictions about how the movies are going to perform uh so i mean you have uh, almost everyone watches movies and so everyone has their own opinions so actually can we uh, use that to say whether a movie is going to work or not. How did you do this? Did you just look at uh, the number of uh, tweets about a particular uh, movie, or did you look at sentiment, uh, whether they liked the movie or not? Uh, what What did you do? Yeah. So uh, what we did was we first we we uh, collected data from from Twitter uh, over a three month period, and we collected uh, all the tweets that that uh, where people refer to particular movies uh, in the, that are currently playing. And uh, basically, we started tracking uh, the movies like about a week, more than a week before it was released. And we just considered uh, all the tweets that uh, referred to that movie uh, for the week prior to the release to make predictions on the first, on the opening weekend box office. And uh, most of these, uh, most of the tweets before the movie's released is, uh, is basically about uh, people who were sort of anticipating it so they're sort of excited about watching it or they're like have you heard this movie's coming out and all that stuff so i mean you don't really have sentiments about people you know expressing how good a movie is or something because i mean it's not released obviously and also the fact that i mean so so basically uh it's sort of like a buzz that that exists around a movie before uh before the movie comes out what we did is we initially looked at the, the correlation between the tweets that is the rate at which uh the tweets were created uh and the correlation of that with the performance of the movie, and we found that there is uh, there was a very significant correlation, which uh, which showed that I mean not only so 
we would ex- in, in an intuitive sense you would expect that movies that are very well talked about would do well in the box office but to observe a very strong correlation among all movies that was something that was uh, very interesting and so which in which movies did you look at avatar would have been i guess the biggest film of the last year what other films did you look at uh, we looked at about 24 movies over 3 months uh, from november to february okay and uh, i mean we 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 obviously had to choose movies which uh, which i mean for, for the title was not very ambiguous like for instance i mean 2012 would be difficult to get tweets on because there would be a lot of people talking about the year 2012 as opposed to the movie and it would be difficult to distinguish that so we chose movies for which the, the titles were I mean, it's pretty obvious that they're talking about the movie when they refer to the titles uh and uh, you can i mean yeah avatar was definitely one of them and we also had movies like uh, new moon and uh basically about 24 movies uh in that period so i guess leading into that opening box office you can just look for the look for the search or do a search for avatar i guess and, and count the number of tweets uh yeah after that you looked at uh you know the the box office returns on the following weekends and you started to look at uh, sentiment uh in the tweets how did you do that that sounds like a, a much more difficult problem yeah so sentiment analysis is sort of i mean it's been studied uh, in the machine learning community quite a bit about you know you have all these uh, different blogs and reviews and people want to make some sense out of it uh in the case of twitter you have uh, i mean it's much shorter all the messages are shorter uh, and so you you can actually uh, i mean it it, it is uh, probably uh, easier to build a sentiment classifier on twitter than on uh, on longer text and so what we did was we collected so we used the data so for this we used the data that is uh, so we were looking at the second weekend in this case for the sentiments of and we looked at the the tweets uh, after the movie was released uh, leading up to the the second weekend and uh, we uh, built a classifier to actually um, a natural language classifier to actually uh, distinguish between positive and negative uh, sentiments we made use of the the amazon mechanical turk which is like a service where people uh post jobs and other people perform uh tasks for for very nominal fees and we sort of used that to uh, use the real people essentially to train uh, our classifier and uh, and then we we used that cla- the, the trained classifier to uh to establish whether our tweet was uh, had a positive or a negative sentiment and we took that ratio the ratio of positive to negative uh, as a feature uh, to 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 the predictions and uh, we observed that i mean that the tweet rate which we had initially looked at was uh, was a very strong predictor and the the use of sentiment as an additional feature uh, improved the model but uh, it was not as significant as the tweet rate itself do you think that the the correlation means that the twitter audience uh, or the people using twitter are the same group of people in society that are that are going to movies and so hence there's a, a strong correlation there or do you think it means that maybe PR firms should uh, should get onto Twitter and advertise their movies to create a a buzz. Yeah yeah that's that's a very interesting question actually. I mean we did observe uh, both scenarios so you have people uh, talking about general people uh, a lot of people talking about movies and you also have PR people I mean PR messages on Twitter which actually talk up which which say something like uh, I mean retweet uh, this to get a free t-shirt or something like that and they have the movies uh, The, the name of the movie in it and this is sort of a lot of people retweet this and and it sort of propagates so you have like two two different things here uh, and yeah it is uh, it is something that um, i mean a lot of marketing people and advertising people would sort of think of as um, as a as a very efficient medium to advertise their product and therefore generate buzz um, and so yes actually both both uh, 
both things are happening on Twitter. Um, but uh, we, when we looked at the number of tweets to the number of authors, to the number of people who posted, we found that it was, um, I mean, it was roughly uniform. You had, it was about 1.3 or something, the ratio. So, which meant that you have, like, people, a lot of people posting about movies, not just a few people posting a lot of messages. And you also found that, uh, that, this, that this method of analysis was better than some other methods of analysis that are out there, such as the, the Hollywood Stock Exchange. I hadn't heard of that before. What, uh, what, what is the Hollywood Stock Exchange and, and how have you bettered it? Uh, so the Hollywood Stock Exchange is, uh, is a play money market it's where you have people uh, investing play money in, in movie stocks. Uh, and so you have, I mean, essentially it's like a, it's like a betting market with play money. And so you have a lot of people participating in it, and uh, the, uh, it's it's similar to a stock market. You have the, each movie stock uh, trades at a particular price, and that changes uh, depending on how well the movie does and things like that. So what we did was we uh, we compared um, the regression using our tweet the, the rate of tweets with the regression obtained from the the Hollywood Stock Exchange prices, and uh, yeah, we, we we found that uh, the tweets were actually uh, accurate. Uh, accurately predicting, uh, more accurately predicting uh, the, the performance. More, more uh, yeah. So the the regression model for for the tweets was better. I wonder what we could do with with this information. You can't lay bets on. Uh, well, maybe you can lay bets on movie box office. I don't know. <laughs> What's next? What what might be in the future for this sort of work? Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, one thing that we have shown is that you, we can actually use social media for for uh, for predictive purposes, and obviously this opens a lot of doors. I mean, you have a lot of, uh, I mean, uh, there is a, there is other work that is sort of proceeding on these lines. Like you have, uh, I mean, some people who are looking at using uh, Twitter to predict like election results, and I mean th- these kind of things are. I mean, basically, uh, you can any sort of popularity contest or, um, uh, I mean, put. To, to judge the popularity of a product or something, then uh, Twitter or and these kind of social media are so. This has sort of shown that they can be uh, quite useful for these for these things. So uh, yeah, the possibilities. I mean, there are a lot of possibilities that that emerge from the study. Um, you can look at uh, particular products that you're interested in and sort of monitor monitor the buzz about the products. You can sort of, as I said, people are working on uh, sort of predicting election results and stuff. So yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder whether that would, uh, I wonder whether it would work because uh, I guess the thing about Twitter is that maybe it's a generational thing. But I, uh, I imagine most people who use it are possibly under the age of thirty-five. I guess. Yeah, I think the majority is about eighteen to thirty-four. Yeah. Um, so to be really interested to see if it does work as a as a predictor, it worked quite well for movies because I guess that's the same as the movie going audience. But, yes. Uh, yes, that's true. But for elections, I think that'd be fascinating. Our, our main question was to to understand the, the value of social media, and uh, to some degree, we have sort of shown that it's uh, that it can be very useful. And uh, I mean, yeah. So there there's, there is a lot of research that 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 is that, that is still to be done, and that will still be done on on these lines to sort of further the further uh, I mean use this sort of powerful medium for uh, for other purposes. And basically, you have uh, so this is the one one interesting thing about this is that you this is all uh, extremely cheap. I mean, you're not so people are just sharing all this stuff free. So you have actually uh, it, it it does have enormous potential that is uh, that is going to be realized soon. And do you have a Twitter account then as well? <laughs> yeah, I, I I do, but I don't really tweet that much, unfortunately. Oh, okay. So we can't use your tweets as a predictor of anything then. 
No, no, no. No, actually. <laughs> that was Mark West interviewing Citaran Assur from the HP Labs in Palo Alto. Last week marked the 50th anniversary of the commercial distribution of the oral contraceptive pill. So on Diffusion, we decided to celebrate this birthday by telling you a little bit more about the pill, how it was developed, and how it works. The combined oral contraceptive pill, known as the pill, first became available in Australia in 1961, but was federally approved in the USA in 1960. The two hormones found in the pill are estrogen and progesterone, which act by stopping ovulation. They also act by thickening the cervical mucus to prevent sperm from entering the cervix, and they thin the uterine wall to make implantation of the fetus a little bit harder. Basically, the pill tricks a woman's body into believing that it's pregnant. The placebos that a woman takes are not a true menstrual bleed, but it's actually a withdrawal bleed, which was designed initially by the makers of the pill, who felt that it would be too disturbing for a woman not to bleed while they're on a medication. All safety studies have been done on pills with placebos, but now tricyclic pills exist, which would only cause four bleeds a year. Now, historically, the pill was the brainchild of Margaret Sanger, who dreamed of a contraceptive pill and coined the term birth control. She also founded Planned Parenthood. When her mother died at 50, after 18 pregnancies, she confronted her father over her mother's coffin and said, You caused this. Mother is dead from having too many children. She teamed up with wealthy biologist Catherine McCormick, who was also the second woman ever to graduate from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and physiology Ge Gregory Pincus. Now, ironically, Pincus developed much of his hormonal con control theory by teaming up with the devout Catholic John Rock, who wanted to help barren women conceive by suppressing their ovulation temporarily with progesterone and then seeing if there was a rebound spike of fertility after they quit the pill. Now, at the time, testing hormonal pills on women for contraception was illegal. However, testing hormonal pills on women for infertility was not. So, Pincus and Rock teamed up, and Pincus developed the pill. On May 9, 1960, the FDA approved the pill, noting that approval was based on the question of safety. Our own ideas of morality had nothing to do with, de with the decision. Now, some quick statistics ever since the pill was introduced. In 1970, before it was widely distributed, the median age of marriage in college graduates was 23. In 1975, when it was already much more common for women to be on the pill, it had jumped up two and a half years to 25 and a half. In 1963, 80% of non-Catholic college women wanted three or more children, and this dropped precipitously to 23% in 1973, just 10 years later. In 1970, 70% of women with kids under six were at home, and 30 of them were out in the workforce. And that statistic is roughly reversed today. So for, for better or for worse, um, there's a lot of controversy still sh enshrouding the pill. It's definitely heralded a big change in society. Finally, one of the world's largest studies of the pill, roughly 46,000 women followed for nearly 40 years, was released this March. It found that women who take the pill are less likely to die prematurely from any cause, including cancer and heart disease. Yet many women still question whether the health risks outweigh the benefits. What do you guys think? Well, uh, some people have prescribed the pill for, for other health conditions, aren't they? Well, that's right. Actually, um, funnily enough, throughout the 1960s, it was impossible to get the pill if you weren't 
married. And it was initially prescribed as a, a pill to help women with menstrual problems. So there was a huge spike in women who, you know, had menstrual All problems. All of a sudden, had yeah. some sort of <laughs> It became an, an epidemic in the 60s. Because because ovulation works by a spike in estrogen and progesterone shortly before the the egg is released, what the pill does is it just smooths all of that out. So instead of having huge troughs and peaks, you just get a constant amount of estrogen and progesterone. Oh, okay. okay. So it can help with, with uh, symptoms that are associated with these fluctuations, so PMS and cramping and heavy bleeds as well, because the, the pill stops the uterus lining from becoming overly thick. What then? What happens to the eggs? Do they still come out, or do they? No. Well, the um, the normal process of ovulation, you have one egg that's selected by increasing levels of estrogen to mature, and then at about two weeks after your menstrual bleed, it gets released from um, your ovary and travels down the fallopian tube, and that's where generally it meets or doesn't meet sperm. What the pill does is it stops that estrogen from even starting the the maturation of the egg. Oh, okay. So there's no release. And if the pill's taken correctly, it's technically impossible for a woman to be pregnant. Uh, that That's quite interesting because I know that, that uh, women are born with a certain amount of eggs. Do they run out in your lifetime? How does well, they do because you're, you're born with, you know, well, I'm born, not you, um, <laughs> <laughs> with yep. m- many, many, many eggs. But throughout the course of a woman's lifetime, there's apoptosis. So there's um, cell death that happens in the ovaries, which is why eventually you get menopause, where you run out of viable eggs. They don't, they don't really know why, and they don't know why uh, certain eggs get selected and others don't. So do the, uh, does taking the pill push back menopause? No. You still get apoptosis at the same rate. I think um, it, it's funny. Initially, the, the marketing was the Catholics were always extremely opposed to the pill, but what one of the uh, developers argued was that it wasn't it didn't go against the whole catholic idea of um you know you you're Being killing fruitful. fetuses or anything you're not even creating the fetuses so, so it should be okay in the eyes of god but then it turned more into um a movement of you know it's wild women and swinging singles in the 60s and that's been that's been blamed on the pill as well but i think it it has a lot to do with um being at the right time at the right place I think we had a look at some other statistics from other cultures who um, did not approve the pill. I remember you did have a look at, um, in Japan, the pill wasn't approved, I think, till 1991. Is that right? 1999. And yet they still experienced the same drop down in um, number of children very steadily. But that's more from condom use as opposed to using the pill. And so it's a general contraceptive awareness, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, they, they, uh, until recently, they're condom use was about 80%, which is why they think HIV AIDS is found in such a small proportion of their population. And I guess the the contraceptive pill works completely differently than to the morning after pill? That's right. How does the morning after pill work? So what the morning after pill does is it, it creates a situation in which a woman menstruates, whether or not she's got a fetus in, implanted. So usually when a woman becomes pregnant, when the fetus implants itself into her uterus wall, it releases uh, certain hormones that tells the body, you know, don't menstruate because menstruate is basic, menstruation is getting rid of that uterine wall and sloughing it off and getting it ready so that it's um, inviting for the, for the next month in case there is fertilization. So 
what the morning after pill does is it kind of obliterates those hormonal signals and it, it causes a woman to menstruate and so it just sloughs off the wall with the fetus attached to it. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? Well, it's... it's I guess it is what Microscopic. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like another bleed. I mean, many women abort spontaneously up to 70%. Mm. The morning after pill, I believe it's only only works up to three days or maybe less time after. Yeah, you, the more time passes between when you take it, the the less effective it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they say up to 72 hours, it might still be effective, but... Okay. So it's really interesting how they, these female contraceptions work on on hormones. It's, there's not a direct action. You know, like a condom, it's obvious how it works. But the, these female contraceptives, it, it's a little more indirect. That's right. And it, it must have been a huge difference because it's not like the pill is the first contraceptive. I mean, people were using condoms since the 1700s. But the pill was the first non-messy, non-invasive, women-controlled women contraceptive. I mean, up until then, there was the diaphragm, but that was messy and really inconvenient. And really, if your partner wanted to have unprotected sex, it would be very difficult for you to, to have the opportunity to insert a diaphragm. So it really became something about a woman's choice. Miss Jensen, is it true that people can tell when you're menstruating? No, it isn't. But you should be more careful than ever about personal cleanliness and daintiness. Change your underwear more often and be sure and use a deodorant. And pay more attention to your hair and your nails and plan to wear your prettiest dress. In other words, be your most attractive self. And remember, menstruation is only a part of growing up. As you grow, your body changes from that of a young girl to that of a woman. It's becoming round with the beginnings of a bosom and the start of a real waistline and hips. And hair is beginning to grow in different places, pubic hair and underarm hair. Yes, Anne? Miss Jensen, what about dancing? Can you when you're menstruating? Yes, you can, with moderation. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and John Bell. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>